Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, and the introduction music tonight was brought to you by a really good friend of mine out of Georgia. His name is Dan L. Hollyfield, and the title of that particular song is Indistinguishable from Magic. If you have not yet heard his work, look him up and friend him on Facebook. He creates some of the most spectacular music I have ever heard in my life. I don't know why some of these movie people that do fantasies and sci-fis don't pick him up because he knows how to write good music. Tonight, we have been joined by another friend of mine, author Glenn Stripling. And with all of the insanity that has been going around, I was supposed to start traveling again this month. It was changed to next month. And it has been canceled. So any of you all who want to come on the show, let me know, and I will set you up. I am so aggravated. I will not be traveling again until August, unless that is put on hold. We'll see what happens here in Florida. Our governor's lost his mind, and most of our mayors have lost their collective minds. So we take one day at a time. But that being said, 
My guest tonight, Arthur Glenn Strickling, has been on my show before. He is a former petroleum geologist who began writing in 2002. In 2008, he independently published his first novel, and I I can never pronounce it, so I'm probably going to massacre it, but it's... All right, Glenn, pronounce it. Cronosia. Cronosia. Through the publisher Infinity, which is now Fast Pencil, he released his second, The Song of Jupiter, in 2018, via Dressing Your Book, and during the past decade, he has sold stories to Shelter of Daylight, The Martian Wave, Outpost of Beyond, and a robot, a cyborg, and a Martian walk into a space bar. Occasionally, he dabbles in Southern literature and has sold stories to Oxford so-and-so. He was also an extra in the motion picture, same kind of different as me, and he lives in Mississippi with his wife, Catherine. He also is in a book called Shelter of Daylight. It is a semi-published digest of upbeat and positive science fiction and fantasy short stories, art, and articles. The works in here appeal to the highest points of readers' imaginations of what is possible and what we dream to be possible. Welcome, Glenn. I'm glad you're back. Thank you. It's so great to be back. It's so good to hear your sweet voice, and uh, I, I really uh, think about that uh, uh, first broadcast we did together, and it was uh, it, uh, so great, and it's good to be here tonight. Well, thank you. It has been. It feels like it's been forever, but then my shows have been so sporadic, and for a time, you know, I didn't even hold them after we lost Jack. So, it it's good to be back on the radio and to be doing something other than losing my mind over the insanity that is now out there that we, I sarcastically call life because it's not life. It's I'm not sure what it is. I think it's just an existence. Maybe it's survival. Who knows? So tell me, what have you been up to? Uh, well, uh, Ronnie, you know, we've uh, had our, you know, uh, times and goings in life. You know, our, our dog passed away. Uh, some members of, members of my family passed away. And um, uh, the best way I can deal it? with it. Uh Yes, I have. In fact, uh, I sent a manuscript about, um, in February, I should say. Um, uh, it's a, a story called uh, Animal uh, World. And uh, uh, you may have heard it and uh, heard about it in, in Dallas. There's uh, this pl- uh, place called Animal World. And where you, you know, check in and you drive a car around and whatever, and you see the lions and the tigers and whatever. But uh, if your car breaks down, you've got to, um, you know, stay in your car and they'll come help you, whatever. So I wrote a story about a, uh, a couple that goes out there, and this lady sees a uh, man that uh, bludgeoned to death her grandmother, and he is now a... Uh, one of the exhibits at this uh, animal world paradise. And, uh, you know, what they did was operate his brain. So he is uh, legally, and these the laws in the future, he is legally not a human being. So, you know, they could do with him what he wants to. And, uh, you know, she recognizes it. I mean, it really freaks her out. And uh, I tried to tell, like, you know, just what legally is a human being, what is not a human being, you know. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, the Seas of Titan. It's a, uh, it's one of the stories I, I uh, sold to um, uh, the Martian Wave, and that's about a uh, that's my intake of the um, that's my take on the um, uh, you know, the abortion uh, controversy, and in um, that thing. Uh, this uh, woman goes uh, to uh, blow up this uh, comet that's headed to this colony. She tries to save it, and uh, she's confronted by these beings because she had an abortion. 
and uh, they try to make you feel guilty about it. But uh, some things are just kind of ambiguous, and uh, that's what I try to bring out uh, uh, bring out in some of my stories. You know, sometimes there's not absolutely right, or sometimes there's not absolutely wrong. And um, you know. So let so let me ask you this: during during all of the insanity that has ensued for now, we're going on four months. Do you think at some point in your sci-fi way out there writing career you will incorporate some of the things that have gone on into a story? Uh, yeah, I probably will. You know, I do a lot of things whimsically, um, you know, before the uh, pandemic, whatever, pandemic. I used to um, um, go to the library, look at things like Discover Magazine, whatever, and uh, find out new science discoveries. I go on the Internet and see if the uh, new plans would have. And sometimes I would just uh, click an idea into my head, and I thought, okay, maybe I can do some social commentary about it. And then I uh, start, uh, you know, writing and uh, Sometimes I don't even know what I'm uh, 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 going to become up, up with, but I sometimes I come up with something. Well, if you're like me, you don't know what you're writing until you've written it, and then you go back and you say, oh, did I write that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, we as writers, we sometimes want to write something one way, but the voices in our head sort of take over, and we don't realize that we've written what we've written until we go back and read it. Isn't that right, Glenn? Yeah, it does. Uh, one time I was, uh, it was years ago, but uh, I was sitting in my living room one morning. I was feeling sorry for myself, and you know, this, this business is going nowhere. This, uh, nobody's reading my stuff. Nobody's buying my stories. I don't know what to do. And uh, so I just, I had to push myself to do it. Uh, but I just put a, um, Picked up a um, a legal pad and pencil and I started just started writing a story. I don't know what's right, and then I came up with a, a story called um, uh, the volcanoes of Io. It's about the volcanoes on uh, uh, Io, which is one of the uh, moons of the planet Jupiter, and it has so much gravitational strength. It just squeezes that moon like a sponge, and it causes volcanoes to blow up. And um, I thought. Okay, I uh, based it on the story of uh, a fear and about this uh, robot that has his, becomes acquainted with Earth's religions, and he learns the concept of fear and what it do, does to human beings. And uh, I couldn't believe it, but I uh, I sold it to Martian Wave. And and uh, and in in that story, fear – what people don't realize is fear is as real or can be as real as the nose on your face. Mm-hmm. Fear can kill you. It'll kill you quicker oh, than yeah. any pandemic or any anything else. Fear is fear will literally you've, – you've heard, you've heard people say, well, they died from fright. Literally, they died from fright. Yeah, uh, that's the most literal thing I've heard about. You know, my mother, you know, struggled with uh, heart disease, and she eventually, it eventually killed her. But um, she told me one time that uh, she was driving up to this railroad track, and there was a stalled a locomotive there, wasn't moving, and she started across a started to cross a track, and um, this uh, big locomotive uh, blew his horn and just uh, blasted her out and uh, it really scared her and uh, she looked up and saw the engineer just uh, laughing at her it was just a practical joke you know but she was a uh, woman that was uh, having car problems and some people don't understand that uh, that that is not funny in a lot of places Mm -mm. It is not, and and to deliberately scare people it should be criminal within itself. 
let's just take the silliness that's going on right now. If if the news media didn't tell us we needed to be afraid, I would venture to say that 99% of us would not be afraid. Because yeah. fear is a fear is a great motivator to do dumb things. Yeah, exactly. That's why I really don't uh, uh, watch you know the mainline news so much these days, uh, whether it's CNN or Fox or what have you. Uh, it's not I'm biased to uh, to one point of view or another. It's just. They have this mindset that if you um, have two people on the air and uh, one says his position and then the other says his position, and they often interrupt each other and argue and uh, like that, and then the host says, uh, thank you so much for such a lively discussion. And I'm thinking, okay. I didn't really learn anything. I just uh, saw these two people yelling at each other. I mean, uh, <laughs> they like You're to say right. there's two sides, but you can say there's two sides to every story. But you know, sometimes there's three or five or seventeen t- uh, mm-hmm. uh, sides, and uh, you some issues you cannot just resolve it completely in just like you know a five minute argument. And that is very but, true, and, and the beauty that we have in writing is we can have conclusions. Yes, we can. And um, my, you know, my approach is is um, uh, most of the stories are right. You know, I, I don't I say, uh, well, it's going to be absolutely this or absolutely that. You know, I just leave my readers wondering. Uh, I just make the point. The question that I leave them with is the point that I usually try to make. Like, is abortion wrong? I don't know. Is abortion right? I don't know. You know, but you know, this is uh, these are the questions that we have to deal with. You know, before we make this uh, decision. And uh, I think that's a, the fairest way to, uh, to put it. Some people think as well. I'm copping out. You know, but I don't care. It's just that. Um, well, isn't that the, true uh, in any book? Any book that we read, Glenn, if if a writer is a good writer, yeah, they leave the reader. And and every reader is different. Every reader gets a different perspective out of a book if they read it with an open mind. And every reader may or may not draw their own conclusion. And I'll venture to say that no two readers get the same perspective out of a book. Just like if you see a a train wreck and you've got ten witnesses, you're going to get ten different eyewitness reports because people don't see the same thing. So the way that you write is is a great way to write because it gives each reader their own perspective and their own conclusion. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, yes, like I say, the, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, it's just uh, I'm just reiterating what I just um, said. You know, uh, to me, the object is to um, you know, leave the uh, reader asking questions, like you know, you know, my greatest um, compliment is when somebody says to me, "Glenn, uh, I read your book, and it's really got me thinking." And that's the greatest compliment that any reader can give an author. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to switch gears just a little bit because I was reading the stuff you sent me. And some things popped out at me. One, and, and I mentioned this in the bio, you were actually a movie extra on a movie. How did that come about, and did it wind up on the on the cutting room floor, or are you seen in the movie? Uh, well, you know, like the first movie I was in, the same kind of different as me. Uh, you're not really able to see me. I was just too far uh, away from, you know, what the cameras they were shooting at. You know, I couldn't even tell what that uh, black man was saying at the podium because uh, the way they recorded it was that um, 
uh, he spoke into a microphone, but it wasn't the microphone at the church over the intercom. It was a microphone of the um, the recording equipment they were making for the movie. So I didn't hear what he said until after my wife and I went to see it. The second uh, movie I was in is called uh, Texas Red. That is um, being made by a guy named Travis Bills. And uh, last year he stated his goal into uh, making 12 westerns in uh, 12 months. He wanted to make a movie, a cowboy and Indian movie, out of uh, each one of the months of 2020. But then the COVID uh, thing hit. And um, um, so, you know, that uh, messed everything up. But, you know, earlier, you know, that year I uh, drove down to Brookhaven, uh, which I guess is maybe like 100 miles from my house. And uh, we filmed that at a railroad museum in Brookhaven, Mississippi. You know, there was just like this 180,000-pound steam train. But uh, they filmed a stunt scene, okay? Now, uh, my idea of a stunt scene is when, you know, a car flips over, a building blows uh, blows up or something spectacular, and and it takes a professional guy to not get himself killed, whatever. But this stunt scene was a guy uh, uh, climbing down the ladder of a boxcar, and I guess for insurance companies or whatever, you know, that's considered a dangerous scene or what have you. But, you know, I said, okay. And uh, I wasn't even too sure I was going to be the movie, but I drove down there, and um, I was wearing this. Um, it said that the uh, 1940s, which in some parts of Mississippi, it was still cowboy and Indian uh, days back then. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so this lady walked up to me, and she says, here, put this on. She gave me this uh, hat, like, you know, a little fedora kind of thing, not quite like Indiana Jones. But she told me to put it on my head. I says, okay, well, I'm going to be in the picture. And um, I met this uh, very um, pretty friendly actress. Her name was uh, Esther Perkins. And uh, we got to talking, and... Uh, they decided to put us on the scene together where this guy was uh, climbing down from the railroad car. And uh, we were supposed to be, you know, uh, talking with each other like uh, train passengers, and then uh, they told us to, you know, you know, walk away, um, you know, the end of the scene. Well, they told us to stand. They had um, a real uh, cowboy there. With you know a real horse, I had fun giving him grass, whatever, so he you know chewed everything, and he was supposed to ride by, and um, he left some real horse poop on the uh, uh, train platform, and they told us to uh, uh, stand right next to uh, this horse poop. That was our position that we were supposed to take. You know, she was supposed to stand on one side of it, and I was supposed to stand on the other side. Uh, and we were acting like we're talking, and, you know, they shot one scene. They weren't happy with it. So uh, they decided to uh, try it again. So I, I walked up to her, and I tried to stand a few, about two feet away from this uh, nasty stuff. And uh, she said, no, Glenn, we are talking. You're supposed to stand right there. So I walked up just uh, with this awful stuff, you know, just about an inch, you know, away from my toes. And um, so we shot the scene about one or two times. And then uh, what it was, it had these uh, black women in the uh, group. It was supposed to, uh, you know, it was a whole crowd of people with these black women behind. And when these black women were supposed to uh, pass us, that was our cue to, you know, turn around and walk off, you know, so, you know, it it would look in the scene like, you know, people were doing something like it was just mm-hmm. like a natural effect. Uh, so I, uh, with Esther and, you know, you'll never guess what we were actually talking about. There's no she was asking me, uh, uh, she was actually, um, asking me about my, uh, 
um, the career as a geologist. I, I was talking to her about geology, but of course they couldn't, you know, pick that up with their microphones and what have you. And I just kept kind of looking at the side of, uh, you know, my peripheral vision. And uh, for the moment, those uh, black ladies were supposed to pass me. And uh, um, that would that would be a cue to, you know, to walk off. And I looked over my shoulder, and they weren't there yet. And then I just slapped my uh, hand on my head. I said, more I gooped up this thing. And uh, she said, don't worry about it, Glenn. We'll shoot it again. They're going to shoot it again. They're probably going to shoot it again. And I said, oh, uh, okay. Uh, and uh, she said, I'll just tell you when it's time for you to turn around and go. But guess what? They didn't uh, – that was the last thing that they uh, – that was the last take that they did. So I'm praying that that won't uh, be the take that's in the uh, movie. It might be. I don't know yet. But Texas Red is about a, uh African-American uh, outlaw in Mississippi in the 1840s, and you know, they were trying to track him down. Um, Mr. Mills is just – you know, it's really obsessed with, you know – making movies about um, real historical figures, you mm-hmm. know, that uh, are, are fascinating. You know, one he is uh, making was, uh, it's about a movie about the uh, last person to rob a stagecoach, and that person happened to be a woman. And he's fascinated oh, really? with her. Yeah, it was, you know, um, I, I knew about it, Paul Harvey, uh uh, did a story about it years ago, but I didn't know too much about her. But you know, he's fascinated with her. Um, Bernard Benton and I uh, drove down to Vicksburg uh, to audition for one of his movies. Uh, I think this particular one was about uh, a movie he's making about the uh, the Mason gang. Um, the Masons were like the Charles Manson family of the 18th century. You know, in, in Mississippi, we have this thing called the Natchez Trace. It goes mm-hmm. all the way from uh, Tennessee all the way down to Natchez. Right. And uh, there there was this maniac who, um, who liked to rob and scare people, and he would chop off people's arms and hang them from trees and put skulls on just to ter- uh, terrify everybody. And, you know, he was just a bloodthirsty maniac. But um, we – or Mr. Uh, Mr. Mills made a, a movie about him audition for it. And uh, Vernon was having a truck trouble that night, so I went down to Star, Mississippi to pick him up like at – I guess it was like 4 in the morning. We drove to Vicksburg. And he and I auditioned for that uh, for that movie. They weren't too impressed with me, uh, but uh, they really liked Vernon uh, because he was a recording star. He played some songs with them, but they really liked the asses. Okay, Vernon's really made his point, but of course, um, he got killed a few uh, about a month or so later. So in the right. he, he he won't get to be in the movie. So of course, we're all disappointed about that. So let me ask you something. I'm going to switch okay. gears because you brought up something that you and, and the, the young lady were discussing on the train platform, and the fact that you were a petroleum geologist. I can't talk. Geologist. Okay. What is that, and how did it filter into your career in real life? Well, you know, my father was a petroleum geologist. Um, uh, in fact, he was, uh, he spent 20 years working for a company called City Service Oil. You know, most people, you know, call that Sitco. And then he became, I guess it was in 77 or so, he became uh, the head of the Jackson chapter of a, a company called Coquina. And then he, uh, then he and his friends, uh, formed a company called Stripling, Gunner, and Horton, uh, and uh, went independent. Then he eventually, you know, became um, 
really independent. That's when I started working with him, you know, uh, when he died. And at that time, I, of course, I was, you know, I'm naive teenager. I just started MILFAS, which is what we call a hard rock a geology course. You know, they uh, their emphasis on rocks and minerals and what have you. Uh, it not things like, you know, oil exploration. But I just had this idea of all these thousand, hundred dollar bills just uh, hanging off of trees, and I was going to get rich like Jed Clampett and what have you. Uh, but I didn't realize, realize you, know, you know, how much work and how much politics, you know, that, you know, was there. And this was at a time when oil business was just collapsing in the uh, 1980s, you know, like they were selling off in space in Houston, Texas, for like a 25 cents a square foot, mm. you know, because it, it was getting that bad, bad, bad back then. Back back then, my favorite joke was, uh, how do you uh, spot a Texas oil man in Midland, Texas? And um, the answer was, you uh, go into a restaurant and say, hey, waiter. <laughs> but, uh, oh. But, you know, I stuck with it, you know, and uh, they kicked me out of Millsaps uh, when I was uh, about two or three years because my, uh, my grades were so low in math. My grades were just getting too low, and uh, I couldn't handle it. But then I uh, transferred to Bellhaven uh, College. It's now called Bellhaven University but um, in Jackson. And I pulled my grades up to 2.0 by taking uh, this computer course. And um, this lady there told me, I went, you need to switch to computer because that's a thing, teacher. And I says, well, all right. And I, when I transferred to Southern Miss, I, um, I took some computer courses, and I made Dean's List my very first time uh, there on my very first semester. You know, uh, you know, when I was at Millsaps, I thought the word study was a, meant getting drunk and uh, annoy girls. But um, uh, but then I, I, um, I became a little more mat- uh, mature. I knew how to study for tests. I knew the strate- uh, you know, the strategy and uh, how things work. So I started pulling up my grades. But um, I'm very lousy at things like statistics and mathematics and uh, um, building computer hardwares and circuits and that kind of thing. You know. One of my professors was a guy that uh, built a lunar landing computer for the Apollo, you know, uh, wow. landing. And he, and he told us that there was just one chip uh, they used how to do it. It's called a NAND gate chip. And, um, uh, back then, it was like you know, about three dollars a piece. Now, um, at that time, you can go to Radio Shack and uh, buy one for like thirty-five cents a piece, and uh, you can make all kinds of good combinations and um, build any kind of circuit you want. But I just couldn't handle it. You know, um, I don't have the. Um, I'm not good at things as sewing. I will never be a surgeon, and um, needle and thread kind of thing like that. And I would uh, put my wire here and put uh, this chip here, wire, and I'd build all these circuits. And uh, a lot of times they wouldn't work once. Even if I did them correctly, they would not work because, you know, wires oxidize and things go wrong and uh, uh, light bulbs burn out and that kind of thing. So I says, look, I cannot handle this business. So I switched back to geology. And uh, I did my uh, field camp in Wyoming and South Dakota, and I I graduated. And um, I did some subsurface mapping for my father. But what that means is um, we take um, uh, data from the oil wells that uh, have already been drilled, and we find out the top of them. And, of course, 
Warner will migrate to the top of um, uh, uh, a formation. That's what we try to find out. The uh, you know, where the top of formation is, you know, the porosity and the permeability. I do a lot about that stuff because I used to take oil and gas reports to my father when I was a teenager, and I would be so mm-hmm. discouraged. Uh, he would do all this work, and then we would have a a, a dry hole. And it happened time again, of course, you know, when we had, we finally had a discovery uh, uh, producing well, you know, we would go out and celebrate. That was my life when I was a teenage kid. You know, of course, you know, that was the Jimmy Carter days. And uh, at that time, all companies were the bad guys. We were the villains that were killing baby ducks and uh, polluting the environment and getting rich while everybody else was getting poor. So, you know, uh, my life was just upside down from everybody else's. That's the world that I grew up in. Um. So so let me fast forward a little bit. I also read that you wrote a story, and you sent it off, and it was probably one of the first ones that you wrote, and you were rejected. Now, and I bring that up because I know we probably have some people here that have put their dream out there, whatever that dream is, whether it's writing or music or, or art or even applying for a job or even trying to get into a relationship, and they throw everything up against the wall and they throw their, their entire psychic into it, and they get rejected. What you did okay. is, once you were rejected, you didn't sit down and take no for an answer, did you? No. Uh, what I found out uh, kind of quickly is uh, part of this, uh, part of the fun of this job is uh, you don't have to deal with uh, people too long that act ridiculous. You know, uh, during my days, I, I worked at a pizza restaurant, you know, and always wondering how uh, people just getting on my case like, how long, why do you take so long to wash dishes? Why do you take so long to mop the floor? You know, this company costs money, 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 and you're uh, you're taking too long to do this and this and that. And uh, I, I just had a, you know, a gut full of it. But when I became um, a writer, I... Uh, I kind of developed a a routine like when uh, every summer my wife and I would um, go down to South Mississippi. We couldn't do it this year because of the uh, epidemic. But um, um, what we did, you know, I I would take her down to, uh, you know, Purvis, Mississippi, um, you know, Bass Academy, uh, just outside of Hattiesburg. And I would let her do her thing. She would go to her classes and seminars and Bible studies and what have you. And I would just get in my car, and I would just drive around the little communities of uh, South Mississippi. It's a very hot area that we would call the Pine Belt. And uh, I would invariably stop at um, um, you know, one library in one county, and I said, look, I'd like to do a book signing for your library. Would that be all right? And I said, well, we don't do book signings. We don't know how to do book signings or something. I said, okay, thank you, you know, and I'll just get to my car, drive 40 miles down to the next uh, county, and uh, um, go there. And um, I went to this one library, and... Um, I said, so look, I would like to do a book signing here. Would that be all right with y'all? And uh, she said, uh, well, uh, we really can't do a book signing unless we get the approval of our main branch. And uh, I said, okay, let's put your main branch on the phone. Give them a phone call, and I'll talk to them. Uh, so she called them, and uh, I said, look, my name is Glenn Stripling. And I'm at this library here, and uh, we need to know if I'm allowed to do a book signing at this particular library. And uh, they would tell me, 
Well, of course you can do a book signing at library. What do we care? What are you calling us for? <laughs> and so I, I, so I, I would tell a lady, I would say, uh, yeah, they, they said we can. And sometimes that's how we would set it up. You know, sometimes they would be a little more um, uh, cold shoulder. I went to this one town, and I walked in, and, uh, of course, it was summertime. And uh, I said, look, I'd like to do a book signing at this library. I'm an author. And uh, she says, well, we let the friends of the library handle that. And I said, okay, can I talk with – can you give me the number to your uh, friends of the library person? I'll talk with them about it. And she says, well, she's on vacation. We don't give out that information. And um, I says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm sorry I bothered you. And I just, you know, walked, I just went on to the next town. So, you know, when people frustrate me, whatever, and uh, I'm not getting anywhere with them, you know, it's no ultra for me. It's no, uh, no pain. I just go on and um, do business with somebody else. Mhm. And that's what you and, have to uh, do. You can't let you can't let people and things keep you down. Yeah, exactly. I was, um, you know, I'm not making a lot of money doing this, but at the same time, I'm getting a lot less stress in my life. There you. <laughs> uh, which I think is a plus there. Well, and and the thing is, some of the things that you have done in your life and some of the incidents that have happened in your life, you have actually put those in into a story. And the the one that comes to mind, well, actually there's three. One of the ones that comes to mind was the first story that you did with nudity. I read the, uh-huh. the back story on that, and I thought I was going to fall out on the floor. Oh, yeah, I, I've actually... Um, uh... I uh, heard from uh, that's called Tabitha's uh, uh, record. I actually, uh, uh, I actually saw a copy of that. I went down uh, up to Carthage, Mississippi, to a book, uh, to a flea market uh, up there, and I saw the copy. And I uh, told Tabitha about that, and uh, she wrote me back and she told me, uh, "Well, that was a very painful memory to her that day." And I said, "Well, I hope I didn't add to her pain." Um. But you actually dropped a pot of hot beans on you getting in a car. Is that correct? Uh, yes. You know, uh, at that time, um, when my wife and I were in Bible study camp uh, that year, I think that was like in 2011. Uh, so I burned up my car, and I had to leave it in, uh, down in Hattiesburg and uh, uh Drive up. So I spent the entire summer without an automobile. I had to walk to everything uh, where I, I went to. But you know, that particular day, um, uh, Tabitha was giving us a ride down to uh, South Mississippi uh, to see Vernon uh, and uh, Cindy Minton. You know, Vernon, the guy mm-hmm. being on your show. Right. And uh, I had a Dutch oven uh, with all that soup on me, and I spilled it on my lap. And uh, I uh, ha- I had to rip off all of my uh, clothes and run into my carport in the nude. And Tabitha, <laughs> Tabitha was there, and I told my wife to spray me down with water. And she, uh, she did, and I ran into the... Uh, Bathroom and I filled up with water and um, you know put cold water and uh, Tabitha looked so cute and she came into my house with a clipboard next to her head because she didn't want to see me but I was wearing a uh, bathrobe at the same time and uh, Kathy put mustard all over my legs because it had what turned out to be second degree burns on my legs uh, because. She's a nurse, and she knows about uh, 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 naturalistic ways of healing, and she knows that uh, mustard has turmeric in it, which is a very right. good uh, burn treatment. So um, we got in Tabitha's uh, 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 truck, and she drove me to an ER, and, uh, of course, my 
I was in so much pain, I told Tabitha to stop because I had to uh, throw up. And I threw up um, in the um, uh, you know, in the middle of the highway, and she uh, she drove me all the way. And uh, I stopped, uh, we went to the ER, and uh, this lady says, okay, please fill out these forms for us. And I says, I'm burning to death. I'm in agony. You know? But uh, I was on my side, I guess. This lady uh, came out, and she recognized my wife. And she says, Kathy, how you doing? And, uh, of course, my wife is a nurse and just happened to be a woman that uh, my wife used to work with. And we told her that I was burned and I was an agony. And she says, Quinn, come in here. Come on in here. So I followed in here, and they took me in, and they found me a doctor, and they gave me a shot of morphine. Um, and then, but the fact, um, were, the fact is, you were able to use that story, that that incident in your life, you were able to wrap it into a story. So something good came out of it, after all. Uh, yes, it did. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of amazed, and it took me about five years to pitch it. You know, uh, yeah, you know, I would write and I send it off, and then uh, I forgot about it for about two or three or four years, and then you know, out of a whim, I uh, I contacted you know this guy, and I said, "Look, I uh, a few years ago I wrote a story about." Uh, uh, me and this lady in this uh, Garden of Eden Paradise, and um, would you be interested in that? And he said, yeah, and uh, I said, and he I finally accepted it, and then uh, at the time, um, there was this uh, online magazine called the National Examiner. You know, they deal with UFOs and um all kinds of crazy uh, assassination theories and conspiracies and what have you. And um, I knew the lady, uh, well, lady, I said, and I told her the uh, story uh, about it. She did a story about me, and I mentioned uh, my incident with Tabitha. And uh, she put that thing in the in her initial rough draft of the article. And I told my wife about it. I said, look, I wrote a story about Tabitha, and this lady is going to tell the whole damn world about it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cuss on the radio. Uh, so my wife called Tabitha, and uh, she says, you know, um, and she told her what happened. And uh, uh, then I wrote a story uh, about it, and she says, oh, I don't care if uh, he calls me Tabitha. I don't, you know, see, I disguised her. She does not look like the uh, l- lady that I have in the story. Right. And uh, Tabitha says, well, I don't, uh, well, I don't care. I am honored. See, and then a few years. Yeah, it, it worked out. And then uh, about a year or two later, Tabitha and I said on this thing about uh, uh, naturalistic healing. And uh, this, um, uh, we were talking about turmeric, and uh, uh, Tabitha raises her hand, and she says, this man here got turmeric, got mustard on his uh, legs when he got burned, and it really helped him. And I got to think, you know, when uh, they took me to the burn doctor uh, uh, before I had skin graft surgery, and uh, she... I told her, I told the doctor my wife put this mustard on me when I got burned, and the doctor didn't know what she was doing. Um, he says, "What were you? Was she trying to make a hot dog out of you?" <laughs> Even the doctor, the doctor did not know that you know turmeric was a good you know uh, well, most, healing most, thing. Most physicians don't. Most people in the medical field are trained to look at the pharmaceutical companies and not to even look at holistic healing. That's why that's why some of this stuff was created by God was for healing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, of course I spent, I had very 
I don't have a whole lot of faith in holistic medicine, to tell you the truth. You know, having said that, I used to date a lady that uh, is in holistic medicine, and I have a little bit of faith in it because, you know, when I had a crutch on my neck, you know, she would use her yoga powers or whatever to um, ease my pain or whatever. So I think there's something to it. Um, my main thing, to be honest, is I have more faith, you know, in just uh, uh, faith-based science science-based uh, uh, medicine. Well, well, we could talk about that all day because I have absolutely no faith in science because it is always evolving and it is always changing. Well, you probably uh, do more than you realize, Miss Yvonne. I mean, you do go to a doctor, don't you? No. I, I mean, not. if you, uh, I mean, if you uh, broke a leg or if, uh, uh, I will you put it to some, you this uh, way: I was, I was on death's door, literally on death's door, before my friends talked me into going to a doctor. I have been fighting with doctors for sixty-five years, sixty-seven years, because that's why it's called a practice. Mm-hmm. It's a guessing game. Well, if we think this is wrong, so we're going to run this test to rule this out. Well, if you think this is wrong, why are you running running another test to rule something else out? Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any. It's not logical to me. Well, we think maybe you have A, B, or C, but we're going to run D to to rule that out first. Well, if you think I got this, why don't you run this test first? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, having said that, I think you have a uh, good point. What my um. My father died. Uh, he, I called. Uh, I'm out here in uh, Lake Norman. I'm at my house here, and I called nine one one. And I just asked a question. You know, should I continue getting CPR uh, to him, or shall I just let him go? And then, uh, about um, twenty minutes later, we had. Uh, uh, an ambulance. We had police cars. We had the county coroner. We had about 20 people walking around uh, my house try, uh, asking us if we want to revive and whatever. And then uh, one of the um, ladies, some brother, you know, their main interest is, you know, to cover their butts. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. You are so, exactly you know, they, right. They don't want their interest is not so much on the law, on the uh, patient, but to protect themselves from the lawsuit. They you are exactly right. Yeah, they're conditioned um, by society, by this legal system, litigious system that we live in, to um, you know always uh, protect do, themselves. Yeah, more than sorry, to, you know, to protect themselves, and I, and I don't blame them. You know, because when you see these uh, tourists uh, coming over from uh, England or France, whatever, coming to America, guess what they take pictures of? Not the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. They take pictures of these uh, coffee cups from McDonald's that says, uh, uh, do not, uh, you know, this is very hot. Do not spill on you. Oh, my word. And... Yeah, so I mean, if they uh, spill it, then they then they have a lawsuit. Yeah, right. And uh, caution, heart, yeah, do not uh, spill. Yeah, we'll burn you. Well, anybody that orders coffee, that orders a hot coffee, should have sense enough to know that thing's hot, and if you spill it, it's going to burn you. Exactly. Um, I, I was listening to Doctor Laura one day, and uh, one of my favorite stories that she told was. Uh, this um, Scandinavian guy was in a lawnmower repair shop or something like that. And uh, this one guy asked him, says, let me ask you something. Uh, why, how come, you know, in your country in Scandinavia, they don't uh, have a warning uh, or user manuals or warning things uh, uh, for, you know, power tools? And he says, well, 
because no uh, self-respecting Scandinavian would cut his finger off with a power tool and file a lawsuit about it. Exactly. Yeah. We we in America are lawsuit happy. But you're not going to believe this, my friend, and we didn't get half to half of what I wanted to talk about, so we'll have to bring you back someday. We are down to the last four minutes of this show. Oh, my goodness. Are we time traveling? <laughs> and, and this is the guy that was nervous, ladies and gentlemen, because he was afraid that, I don't know what he was afraid of, but he was nervous. But as anybody that has ever been on this show knows that this hour goes by so, so fast. So what I need for you to quickly do is tell the people where you can be found, and I'm going to give a list of the books for them to go and check you out. Okay, the best way to find me is uh, go to my Facebook uh, uh, wall. I call it a wall, uh, but other people call it a timeline. It's Glenn Stripling. And uh, if you want to... uh, Learn a little bit more about me. Go to www.cradosia.com. And if you want to email me, email at gstrip2002 at yahoo.com. And, and his books are, his, his writings are in Shelter of Daylight. His book is Cranasia. He's also in a short story book called Tis the Season. Yours truly is in there as well. I had forgotten all about that story. And then the Song of Jupiter. And I guarantee you, if you like sci-fi and you like things that are different, you will like Glenn's work because he is very informed, he is very articulate, and he is very dedicated to the written word. So check him out, and we will, we I always leave my my listeners guessing because there are a couple of the stories like five or six or seven and the Beth Israel story that we did not get to. So Glenn, we have to bring you back soon and talk about those. Okay, that'd be fine. So are you going to be doing any book signings real quick? Well, I uh, this COVID nineteen thing make, uh, makes it very difficult. By this time uh, uh, of the year, on a usual year, I, I would have had about three or five or seven uh, book signings already. But I just did my first one yesterday, which is not really a book signing; it was just a flea market kind of thing. I'm negotiating with uh, uh, a museum here in Jackson, hoping they would let me uh, uh, do a book signing. Uh, take part in their uh, uh, event on July the 11th. Well, uh, everybody listen to that and, and go join this page, and that way you can keep up with what he's getting ready to do because he's all over the map in Mississippi. At, he knows Mississippi like the back of his hand, and, and I'm sure he has some some more stories to tell that we have not even gotten to. And when he talks about Natchez Trace, there's a town on on the um, in in Lower Mississippi. It's called Natchez under the river. Natchez under the what's it called? Natchez under the trace. Yeah, the Natchez Trace is a, a highway. It's the oldest highway in Mississippi. It's like 300 years old. Natchez, I think, don't quote me. I think used to be the capital of Mississippi. Uh, it was like the um, it was like the Beverly Hills of Mississippi in the uh, 18th century. It's like the where the really rich slaveholding entrepreneurs would go. It was a place you you would go if you wanted to be really rich back then. So see, he can regale us with the history of Mississippi. Now, as of right now, I have no more um, shows. At, because, again, I thought I was going to be traveling. But since I'm not, I will work on getting some shows up. Glenn, I want to thank you, my friend, for for allowing me to spend this hour with you. Thank you for letting, uh, having me on. Well, we will have to do it again because the hour went by so fast. I mean, it just okay. it flew by. It was there and it was gone. 
Okay, yeah. And I have, uh, you know, some friends that I talk with who on and off want to be on your show, too. So okay. I was uh, really happy to, uh, to, to learn that you brought it back, and I really hope that you continue it. I know you have other responsibilities and what have you, but um, I really hope you continue this. I think it's a good thing, and I really appreciate all that you do for artists and writers. Well, thank you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will say good night, and we will see you next time around. Good night, my dear. Good night. Talk to you soon. And get those people okay. to me. All right. Okay, I Bye-bye. sure will. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.